HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, I don't know, like sometime like kind of around 12 to like 12.45, 12.55, sometimes 1, uh, Easter time on the Heritage Radio Network in br- 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 Brooklyn, and the specific area in Brooklyn is Bushwick. So, uh, we are here today, Dave, Dave's in the booth, or David's in the booth, how you doing? Hey, hey, good. Yeah? We do not have uh, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez, she is in Naples. Not Florida, Naples, like the actual city. Oh, she didn't retire to Florida. <laughs> Can you imagine Nastasia retiring to Naples, Florida? Um, no, she's in the actual, you know, Naples, like Napoli. Uh, when I was a kid, you got like we have some some guests here to take Nastasia's place. But uh, before I get to that, David, where did you grow up again? Uh, outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. Did you get the uh, the Napoli car advertisements when you were a kid? No, never saw them. See, when I was a kid, the, the word Napoli to me was a used car salesman who literally called his used car lot Napoli. Like, new cars, used cars, come to Napoli. You never heard this commercial? Anyone? No? No. I think it was a New York City environs area. So, like, to me, like, when I think of Naples, I think of used cars. I don't think of, you know... I mean, that's kind of sad, right? The local commercials here are pretty amazing. they got a leg up on Philly, for sure. Yeah, but as I said before on the air, nothing on New Orleans. New Orleans has, like, some, like, sweet local commercials. So, taking Nastasia to Hammer Lopez place, we actually, we have two people here. One officially says she's not here, but because she's here, she actually is here. We have, this is not who I'm talking about, Nick Wong. Hey, Nick. Hi. Hi. Yeah. You might have remembered him from the last time he was on the show and he purposely made faces at me, which you can't see through the internet, but wouldn't, wasn't saying anything. But today he's, he's going to say stuff, right? Stuff. Stuff. Yeah, right. So Nick uh, came to uh, work with me at the French Culinary. When were you there? 2008. 2008. And then after that went to Sambar for what, like a billion years? 
plus two, billion yeah, and two. Billion and two years at Momofuku Sambar, and then decided he needed to uh, sow his non-Momofuku oats. And where did you go? You went to Gramercy. Went to Gramercy, and then you went out back to California for a while. Mm-hmm. Worked with uh, Chris Costantino, right? Yep. Where else did you work anywhere else there? Nice dodge at a few places. And then and you hightailed it back to the to the good old East Coast, even though you're from California. I say you're from Milpitas, but you're not. Yeah, you just made that up. That's I made it totally, up. Wow, that's, you just pulled that out of your ass. It's close, though, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, a little it, bit. It's a, you know that Booker doesn't allow me to say the word Milpitas? I think you told me this once. Yeah, Booker, because like I think it's a hilarious word, and obviously it sounds like, you know. Like millipede. Or like, you know. I don't know what you're like you're about. like junk, like man junk, kind of like like a mill peat. Like it sounds weird. It sounds weird. It's like the town. It's my other favorite one that Booker won't let me allow me to say over here in Connecticut is uh, the Mianus. He won't let me say the town name Mianus. There's a town named Mianus. There is. Well, he says it's pronounced Mianus, and I'm like, prove it. And I've never had anyone call in who lives there and be like, is it Mianus? Is it Mianus? Phone lines are open. Yeah, phone, yeah. Call in your questions or your correct pronunciation of Mianus to. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. So anyway, so where are you actually from then? If you're not from Milpitas, San Mateo. All right. So then after that, he comes back to Momofuku Sambar. What's your current title there? Uh, Chef de cuisine. Chef de cuisine. That's one of those weird titles. Chef de cuisine can mean like almost anything, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So like you know, but you're actually coming up with recipes, right? You got anything new that you're working on? Not really. Come on. <laughs> what do you got new that you're working on? What did you put on in the menu last month that you, that you think is fun? Uh, we just did a new scallop crudo dish. It's going on in this menu tomorrow. What kind of scallops are you getting? Good ones. But are you getting like, like, are you getting like sea, bay? What are you getting? Sea scallops, 1020. Yeah, 1020. You know, who, you know who my favorite scallops ever? Are the freshest scallops ever. You ever like, you ever like, like hang out like, and where they bring the Nantucket scallops right in and just get them like right there? Is it over by my anus? It, well, pretty close to my anus. Everything, when it, wherever I'm there, my anus is always pretty close. But the, uh, <laughs> no, but like uh, Nantucket scallops, like day boat, like right off the thing are like. I've actually never shucked a live scallop. I've, I've always wanted to. I don't. I've, yeah. The, well, the, the other thing is, I think even when they are like live, like on, on the shell, like how long they've been in transit is a huge uh, impact on kind of their kind of flavor profile. But. I don't know. It's also like when you're hanging out up there. I don't know. Every all the seafood like has you know it tastes like you're eating it in New England. You know why? Because you are. You know what I mean? Food really tastes different depending on where you're eating it. I think like your mental association with the food. Like yeah. if, you, if you hate the people cooking it, it never tastes as good. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're eating it in my anus. Well, again, I'm all. I won't go back into it. You're not going to draw me back into this, Nick. And we also have <laughs> back with into us, the anus. That, oh my God, that was a good one. David, was that you or was that Nick? I wasn't looking. That was me. <laughs> sweet. That's sweet. All right. Um, we also have with us uh, Esther. Esther, what's your last name? Ha. Ha. Cool. And you're a cook at uh, at wh- which one of the uh, Daniel Balud establishments? Cafe. Ca- Cafe Balud. How's, how's it going over there? It's good. Yeah? What are you, are you making anything fun? You got anything fun? Um, fun dishes? Fun dishes. Yeah. Something that's like like I have to go try it. I like I need to like run. I mean, it's a great place. What what, what do I need to go there and eat like right now? She put Korean food on a French restaurant's menu. Really, like what kind of like hook me up? Because also Cafe Balud is like of all of them is the more traditional. I mean, 
But like actual like Danielle, I haven't been in years and years. But when I did go, like it was like hardcore, like Garadon service, like like the waiter knows how to like get the fish out of the uh, pastry and then like debone it and put the fillets without touching it. Like hardcore, awesome, like like tears to your eyes, old school French. But I mean, to tell you how long ago the last time I was there was Dominic Ansel was still the pastry chef there, so it was like a long time ago. But uh, you know, they all they also had their share of like kind of like. Um, you know, kind of cutting edge and weird stuff to go with the old school French. But I've always pictured like kind of Cafe Belou's being like, like you know, like a, a bastion of kind of like a lot of the old school cool Frenchy stuff, right? So, would, how do you Koreanify? Koreanify? Koreate? Koreate? To create a dish? Yeah. At, the, at Cafe Balloon. How, how did you do that? What, what did you do? Like, what are we talking? Did you add some pepper paste to it? Like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Did you throw some, like, wild mountain pickled vegetables onto it? Did you, like, did, what did you do? Uh, we, have, we have a voyage section of our menu, and it changes every season. Mm. So the next one is Korea. Mm. So I was trying to pitch a dish for fish. That's good. It's, you have good alliteration there. It's rhyming more, but it's like more, it's rhyming. Fat, more rhyming. Yeah. But we have a good dish for fish. So, like, what else? What are they doing in Korea? Like, how big is the voyage section of the menu? Um, it's a quarter of our menu. That's a big voyage. So, how long have you been doing voyages? They didn't used to have that years ago, did they? Uh, they've had it since Gavin. Yeah. So, like, hat, like, it's been a while. so again, a long time. But like, so give me, give me, uh, what are you doing to the fish? What are you doing? So, I'm, I'm doing. The special for this past week was a take on agujim, which is a braised monkfish dish in Korea. Yeah. So, good or bad? Uh, visually, pretty shitty. Yeah. Like, it's a pile of red mm-hmm. fish mm-hmm. and then soybean sprouts. So once you overcook a monkfish and then you keep going, like, what happens? No, right? Because, like, monkfish, what's interesting about it is it's got that, like, kind of, like, shellfishy kind of texture to it, right? So, really, it's okay. So, like, you know how, like, okay, uh, you know, Nick, we used to have this discussion, so it's been a long, you know, been having it for years and years. Back, I would say, like, in the mid-2000s, right, when everyone was interested in these hyper-low uh, fish preparations and, like, the the thing that people were most worried about like in life was overcooking your fish right that was what everyone was like <gasps> you know and, and and when you're cooking that style that prep style which I think you know a lot of it came to us via like um, like the Rocas in uh, El Calar con Roca over there because they were doing a lot of that really low really low temperature fish or you know and then later on you had I guess when Modernist Cuisine came out a couple years ago like that super low temperature gooey duck the stuff that is like not really cooked in the classic sense of cook. And so for a number of years, like cooked, when I say cooked, I mean like traditionally cooked fish dishes were like not served. Like you wouldn't get them. You know what I mean? At a lot of restaurants. Um, But monkfish is one of those fish that I think you want – like I don't really particularly, and people are going to get mad at me, like the low-cooked shellfish. Except for the gooey duck actually that Miraval and and Chris Young and those guys did. I thought that was excellent texture-wise. But in general – uh, I mean, I don't like my shrimp hammered. I'm not a barbarian. I mean, I like it cooked, but I don't like it. But I don't like it when it's low, especially something like a shrimp. You know how when shrimp is a little bit too under and it's still got a little bit of that paste? That yeah. little bit of that. Bit, yeah. Hate. I don't like that either. Hate. Hate. Hey, we got a caller on the line. All right. All right. So, yeah, so we're going to take a call in a second. But, but here's my question. So when you're doing monkfish, you actually want it to be a little bit springy. So it seems like it would work for a dish like that, and you shouldn't be afraid to do a longer, afraid to do a longer cooked version. Agree or disagree? 
Agree. Yeah. Is yours braised? No. Oh, so yours is not braised. The traditional no, the, one is the braised. The traditional one is braised. We we kind of re revamped everything so that because you thought the traditional one was too hammered and you didn't want to serve people like uh, also it looks it's a pile of red so pile of red it's like you know if you're gonna have a pile of something i guess green would be your first choice <laughs> red would be your second choice brown is last brown is blue is last what? i'll take blue over brown all right caller you're on the air Oh, hey, it's uh, Judy from Malden again. Hey, how you doing? Nastasia is has your cookies in the freezer. So, I know. We've yeah. had our wires crossed a couple of times. I, I think the cookies are where uh, Fox is going to die in her building. No, so. no. It, they're, they're Apparently they're in the freezer, but we won't be eating them next week on the air. It'll be the no, week after. No, no. Yeah. There's another set of cookies. Ah. Mm-hmm. I've uh, designed like uh, ten signatures from now, which is crazy. But uh, yeah. So what do you got going there's... on? Mm-hmm. What do you got going on? You got a question for us? Yeah, well, there's one specific question. You want me to tell you about like what I had come up with in terms of pricing? But there's a, a cookie with Cheetos in it. Two cookies, so. How do you get the Cheeto to stay crispy? Oh, well, I mean, you need need to use a cookie. Cheetos are, first of all, you have to, if you want a Cheeto to remain crispy, you can't use the puffy ones. You have to use the the hard ones, the ones that are less expanded. I, I am using the hard ones. All right. So that's your first step. The second step is that, uh... You're going to need to choose a low-water cookie. You know what I mean? A low-moisture a low moisture cookie. You're going to have to go hard-bake. Like, you're not going to get a soft-bake texture because it contains moisture and also have your Cheeto remain uh, hard unless you did some, like, real fancy footwork. And I have to think about it. Uh, but, you know, because there is a classic cookie that I didn't know existed. Maybe you guys know this existed. Maybe it's a California thing or maybe it's a Massachusetts thing. I don't know. King Arthur Flower has a recipe for it because the Chester County Fair where I was last week, uh, they had uh, a contest for it. Potato chip cookies. Potato chip cookies. Oh, I like potato chips and uh, Tozy's compost cookie much better than I like pretzels. I Mm. think pretzels are just kind of gross. There. I don't know. My, my favorite Tozy cookie is corn. Yours, Nick? Compost. Compost? My favorite corn. I don't like uh, the coffee in it. Like, kind of, there's coffee in it, right? I, I like I the coffee. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I'm not a fan of coffee flavored cookies. I mean, they're they're good. My favorite corn. Anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Do you like coffee flavored ice cream? No. I mean, I can appreciate oh. that it's done well or done poorly, but I don't like it. You know we, what I mean? We know Nastasia doesn't like it. Yeah, I mean, I will eat it. I, unlike Nastasia, I will eat something, and I can appreciate if it's well what made. Dunkin' Donuts is? What? Oh, Dunkin no, she Donuts. Has, Dunkin' Donuts coffee is way too high rent for Nastasia. If it doesn't come from, like, a guy that made it the day before, like, like, like on literally being sold on the street, she doesn't actually enjoy it. Uh, I, I, if I the taste of the paper Stas cup doesn't, email. like... What? I told Stas in an email that you have to get, like, a Mr. Coffee and... A can of chock full of nuts, just for her, really. Yeah, chock full of nuts. That brings back some pleasant memories of getting... No, they're not pleasant. What am I talking about? No! Yeah, chock full of nuts does not bring back pleasant memories. 
I mean, it's fine. Whatever. My mom used to. Uh, my mom uh, was went to med school when I was a kid, and the only source of uh, nutrients for the med students without leaving the hospital at Columbia uh, Uptown was a chock full of nuts. And so, like, I spent a good chunk of my childhood only eating crappy, overwrapped, and sometimes rancid cream donut pastries. From I'll never forget. I didn't. I used to hate cream donuts for like like 10, 10, 12 years because I got one that was moldy and it knocked me off of cream donuts at, at a chock full of nuts in the 70s in, you know, uh, uptown in New York and it knocked me off of cream donuts for like well over a decade. I don't even, I still don't like them. I'll eat them. Do you like a cream donut? I like moldy cream donuts. Only moldy. Ones. Only moldy? Only mold? I like Boston cream donuts. Of course, because you're from up there. So the, uh... uh I, uh, but about fucking donuts, like people order extra extra even though regular tastes like almost ice cream anyway look I, look you know I, I got to get to the, the, the pricing thing in a sec because I got a bunch of stuff I, I got to get oh, to. But okay, here, but, here yeah, but, but, yeah. but before I do that, let me just say this. Dunkin' Donuts, and I mean, there's this argument on the internet a while ago, and it keeps coming back up. Dunkin' Donut has ruined the world in terms of the way they spell donut. It's just ruined. <laughs> it's just ruined. And they've also ruined the, you know that they've trademarked, they can trademark Boston Cream because they spell it C-R-E-M-E. C-R-E-M-E. What the heck is C-R-E-M-E? Boston cream. It's a Boston creme. Do nut. It's a. They sell do nuts. They do not sell donuts. And I happen to like Dunkin' Donuts, by the way. The flavor of Dunkin' Donuts. I happen to enjoy them because I grew up eating them. I'm just very mad at what they've done to our language. Yeah. Well, anyway. that, oh, okay. One more thing. Uh, there's a cookie with sumac in it. Oh, that's good. I like sumac. There are uh, uh, quote unquote. Slim Jims in the cookie and Red Hot. Whenever I think of Slim Jims, I have to. I have to. If I was wearing a hat, I would take it off from my man, Macho Man Randy Savage. The face. You gotta, you gotta pull one out. Yeah, I gotta pull it. Snap it. So just snap it to it. Question, there's not really a solution, or you're gonna think about it. Yeah, I'll think. I'll think. I'll think about it. But remember, I, okay. I would look. I would All look right. at the classic well, potato chip cookie recipe. And see what they're doing. But I looked at the, the classic potato chip cookies that were the winners in this contest they had at the Chester County Fair. Which, by the way, we should all enter. Everyone at Cooking Issues who listens should go and we should just crush all the locals. Not that they can't cook. But we should just imagine if, imagine if all these like cooking nerds descended on Chester, the Chester Fair, every year. And it was just like, boom! And just like dropped like a huge like splat of stuff on everyone's like baked good. It would be crazy. It would be awesome. It would be intense. You know what I mean? Also, here's something that obsessed me about the Chester County Fair. Chester County Fair's vegetable, uh, the, the vegetable judging, it's all shape. It's all shape. Shape. No so, like, flavor? No, no flavor. No flavor and not even like a size. So like we're growing like a huge pumpkin. Huge. It's already, it already weighs more than the kids. It's huge. You know what I mean? Like both of the kids put together. But it's like, it's like shape. I mean – that's like that's what's that's what's so wrong with American fruit and veg today is the shape based. Because who cares shape and color? Who cares? That's not. I mean, color sometimes is an indicator of quality, but rarely. You know what I mean? It's like I mean, you know, more red. Eh, whatever. Is this is this social commentary on body image in the media? It could be if you want it to be, or it could just be we need to change the way that people judge fruit and veg in in and, county and, fairs and people. People, yeah, sure. You could change it. I mean, like, I don't really judge people. I just judge fruit and veg. 
Anyway, so so uh, so you're gonna send more cookies, and we'll talk about the pricing when they cut when they get here. Oh, I think she dropped the line. Dropped the line. All right, cool. All right. I like how like Nick tries to make it into a deep inner inner meaning kind of a thing. I know you're not a deep inner meaning sort of person, though. No, no, as we used to call it, dim. No, none of that. Uh, all right. So since we're gonna run out of time, remind me at the oh next week we're gonna be I'm gonna be at Harvard. Uh, I don't know if Nastasia is coming up or not. Uh, but I'm doing the talk with uh, Harold McGee, so I won't be able to uh, be here. I'm giving a public lecture with Harold McGee on Monday. I don't, you know, I don't know how you get into it or whatever up in uh, at, at Harvard. And the subject that I will be discussing is how um, kind of modern ideas of cooking and kind of uh, observational and analytic cooking has led to a change in kitchen equipment design, both from my own perspective, like Searsall, Centrifuge, Cube, stuff like that, and other people's perspective, like the baking steel uh, and maybe what the future of that means as opposed to the past in kitchen design. So that's one of the things I'm going to – or implement design. That's one of the things – I don't know what Harold's going to be talking about. He may or may not talk about impossible foods and like food engineering from that side, which is a kind of a whole new category of things that's going on. But anyway, that's what I'm going to be talking about. Um, so what else? Do you know, Nick, you ever grow tomatoes? Nope. My tomatoes are growing so beautifully this year, and I've not eaten one because some evil freaking either climbing or small mammal has eaten. I see the teeth marks in the tomatoes. I have not had one freaking tomato. My tomato plants are like six and a half feet tall, all up on like things, like all beautiful, like healthy as all get out. Not one. Thank goodness whatever this thing is doesn't like cucumbers or pumpkins or I'd have nothing. rippity do that. Zip. If you plant perilla leaves around, they'll stay away. Really? But it's weird, like, because tomatoes are also a stinky leaf. You'd think that they would... Can you... So you're a planter? You plant things? Mm, no, my dad used to. Yeah? Can I, can I just put, like, a, like, a, like a, some sort of evil, like, like, fence of death? Can I just obliterate everything that lives that walks near the tomatoes? Is there a, some sort of, like, something that does that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I bear this thing ill will. Ill will. You, you got to make yourself a Tesla coil to, to protect your tomatoes. If I look, you know, remember Nathan Mirvol was working on that like like Star Wars defense system for mosquitoes. He was going to wipe out malaria. I need that to pre- protect my tomato plants. I don't think that ever happened. Anyway, all right. Uh, okay. By the way, my son Dax lazy, lazy, <laughs> lazy. I was cooking for all these people this this weekend. Cooking so much, you know what I mean? Because uh, you know, I, I, last week I was on vacation, so like family was coming by. I was cooking, cooking. I'm like Dax, I need to I need to cook. I need to cook. Can you roast the coffee? All he has to do is sit there and turn a crank for like ten minutes. Roast coffee. The entire ten minutes, complaining about how much work it was and why can't I go buy a a automatic coffee roasting machine. Lazy. I love him. Lazy. Anyway. He did help me build a hovercraft. We built a hovercraft together. I saw that video. That was fun. Hovercraft. Fun. Next step, propulsion. Anyway. Leaf blower. I've bought a really good leaf blower. Anyway, this has nothing to do with cooking. Let's get into cooking. Um, Shy wrote in a long time ago about plums, so here's the question. Uh, I've recently made a nice uh, plum tart, but it had a somewhat bitter tart taste to it. Uh, It's a flavor I've noticed before to an extent in uncooked nectarines and peaches. Uh, All the plums I've used were very ripe and not bitter at all. I've mixed them with some brown sugar, then baked them for quite a long time until the crust crust got crisp and brown. Anytime, see, see, brown is bad in a big dish that you serve out, but like anything that's crisp and brown, people like. You know what I mean? Crisp and brown, 
good. Golden brown. Golden brown. Golden brown. Right? It's inherently good. Yes. Anyway. Um, can you suggest a reason for this flavor to develop during baking and hopefully a method to prevent it? Thanks, Shy. Yes. Uh, well, at first I thought – I think you have multiple problems. First of all, what you're noticing is not just you. A quick internet search shows that this is a problem a lot of people have had with plum tarts and I think also sometimes with uh, apricots and cooked plums in general. So the – Short answer is uh, no one's written the answer, and like what people have said is pretty much like the stuff. The answers I have seen are pretty much wrong. I did do some uh, research in the um, and here are the three articles that I, I read: the physical pretreatment of of plums, Prunus domestica, part two: the effect on quality characteristics of different prune cultivars by Luciano uh, Cinquanta, and I read bitterness and astringency of flavin three all monomers, dimers, and trimers by Hannah Peleg in 1999, uh, along along with uh, a couple of other things. And here's what I think is going on: very interesting, uh, very interesting. There are so. There's a lot of like polyphenols and like tans and stuff in in plums, both in the skins where you taste them more in terms of astringency and in the plum fruit itself. Now, one thing I was thinking is is that you ever notice you guys have noticed this when you eat a plum, if you chew on the skin for a long time, you get a lot more of that astringency versus if you just and like suck it down. And also like a lot of the acidity is in the plum skin area in a plum. And so, like, I've noticed a lot when I'm doing um, plum juices um, or infusions with plums that if you let them sit a long time on the skin, the same way that you do with a grape, you're pulling a lot more of the astringency out uh, and a lot more of the sourness. So, like, a, like a, a short, uh, you know, a, a quick juicing where you don't let the plums. So, typically, when I want to extract a lot of those flavors, before I do any juicing or clarification, I'll just smash the plums, the plums in the skins, maybe even – and then the, depending on how much you want, you can blend it. If you blend it, it really does get very astringent and bitter once you then spin it out or clarify it or whatever else you're going to do with it, right? So at first I thought that was the only thing that was going on. But then when I did some research, it turns out that this is a known issue. Uh, when you dry plums – um, the the amount of the uh, catechins, in, which is the same kind of polyphenols that you get in teas, they provide a lot of the, like kind of those bitter astringent notes in teas. They're like somewhat bitter, somewhat astringent, but they're um, polymerized to a certain extent. This is what I've gathered. I could be totally wrong, but chemists will write in. They're polymerized to a certain extent in a native plum, but uh, the more those polymers are built up, the more they taste astringent. Right, the more they're broken down into smaller molecules, the less astringent they are, the more bitter they are. So perhaps, and this is uh, is shown like the data in these articles show that during the drying of of plums from plums to prunes, prunes are so delicious that they actually changed the name. You know what I mean of the thing from plum to prune. You know, dried apples, which I love, are still just dried apples. What about raisins? Right, people like a raisin. Right? They deserve their own name. I personally think dried apricots deserve their own name. I personally think that the best dried apricot, to me, I would rather eat it than a, fr- a fresh apricot. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think it deserves its own name. I don't know. Nick, you'll come up with it. So, Mianus? Uh, I don't think people would buy a lot, of the, a lot of those. I like how you're pronouncing it with the alternate pronunciation, though. Anyway. So my point being... Uh, that as these things dry, the uh, level of their um, – um, the polyphenols in them by dry weight 
uh, as composed of, of unpolymerized catechin goes up by a good chunk. So you could have something that doesn't appear bitter that then appears more bitter. Now, as to what's going on with the tartness, getting more tart, I don't know. But uh, the interesting thing is here that there is chemistry going on here that is beyond my kind of knowledge, but someone else can find out. Now, as to how you fix it, I don't know. I would try to... Maybe do a test where you cook down some that you've uh, blanched and peeled. Can you blanch and peel a plum? You probably could. I mean, I would, guess, I would guess you could. I'm just saying that, though, because I've never tried it. I've never tried it either. I've never peeled a plum. I mean, on purpose. I mean, I've sat there with my teeth and peeled the skin areas off. But I, I tell you what, I'm not. I tell you what, I'm not doing. I'm not sitting there with a knife and trying to cut the skin off of, off of a ripe plum. That's what's not going to happen. No. Would you try to do that, Nick? No. Did I ever tell a story on air where we tried to make you peel fennel seeds? I, yo, you never made me. Yes, do that. no. Remember, way. I pressure cooked the fennel seeds, and they they had those little white insides in them. And I tried to convince you as a joke to peel a quart container of fennel seeds down to the little white things. That's some other stupid person. That's not me. I think that was you, man. I'm pretty sure it wasn't me. I don't know. You're the, the one of the other stupid interns. Did we have another Nick Wong? Yes. Oh, all right. Uh, anyway, so like I would try taking the skin off, and then the other thing I would try is maybe doing um, like uh, some sort of like either. I mean, this sounds kind of gross, but like an egg white soak or like a milk soak to see whether you can complex more, do a more of a hard complexing with the casein of some of these things to suck them out of the plum before you uh, cook it. Uh, alternatively, you could use something else that con- like some other charged. Uh, proteinaceous thing that might complex with um, the precursors to this bitterness and knock them out. That's my. And another thing you can do is you could try to actually dip this stuff in milk and see whether that uh, reduces the bitterness after the fact. And which you know, as a test to see what, what's happening. Although my guess is is that the more condensed, the more po- polymerized the uh, these things are, the better they will complex with milk. But again, you're beyond my actual level of knowledge, and you're into my realm of extreme speculation. Anyway. Which is where I live most of my life. Yeah. By the way, speaking of bitterness, do you know that you know uh, bolites? You know bolites, the the mushrooms, like you know, like porcini's bolites. They're the ones that have the pore structure instead of the gills. Good news about bolites is that well, they taste good and that they um, uh, that they're not poisonous. Like there's very few bo- there's no bolites that are going to kill you. You know what I mean? It's like if you go for gilled mushrooms and you get the wrong gilled mushroom, like you're toast. You know what I mean? Like unless you get a liver transplant, you're hosed. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, like destroying angel, you know, amanitas, things like this. Bolites, like some of them are like toxic-ish, but like they're not going to kill you. Anyway, but there's, there's one that looks fairly similar to an actual porcini. It's called a bitter bolete. Bitter bolete. Bitter bolete. You are a bitter bolete, Nick. See, Nick was going to say I was a bitter bolete. Turns out I have these up in Connecticut. But here's the interesting thing that I'm going to maybe cook some up and bring it. They, whatever is bitter in a bitter bully is only bitter to people who have the genetic ability to taste that particular bitter compound. And like prop, you know, the bitter tasting uh, strips that people test to see if you're a super taster, not everyone can taste it. So if you don't have the genes to taste it, apparently it's delicious mushroom, as delicious as a porcini. But then if you have that gene, it's as disgusting as chewing on prop strips. Like hardcore bitter. So I'm going to try to find some and then bring them back and we'll have a bitter bully cook off. And then we'll sit there and like, like, I, like hopefully I can't taste it just so that I can serve it to other people. So I can sit there and be pounding it. And then someone else eats it. It's like, ah, ah. Right? What do you think? Are you a super taster? You, you guys, have either of you ever done prop? Mm-mm. 
I'm pretty sure I'm not a super taster. I think I did it once. I'm not. I'm definitely not. And I don't feel and I don't feel bad about it, to quote Macy Gray. Hey, David, you ever done that prop strip? I have not. You know what I'm talking about, though? I've never heard of it. So what the, the classic thing you do, so here's the thing. If you want to pretend to be a super taster, and really I don't see why you would, because a lot of, like, it, like it's a really crappy, like, because it makes it seem like it's an awesome thing to be, super taster. I mean, it may or may not be, but it's like, whatever. It's it like, might just ruin your life. I don't know. Well, apparently, uh, you know, super tasters are the ones that go for the white Zen. Uh, just saying. Uh, just saying. Make with that or you want. But, you know, there, there you have it. Ooh, the white Zen. Hater of the white Zen. By the way, people out there, and maybe we get some in the chat room, why has no one made a delicious, well-crafted white Zen? I mean, I'm sure they have. Let me take that back. Why have I never tasted a delicious, well-crafted white Zen? Because we all grew up, like, well, grew up. You know, we all grew up in drinking life, especially, like, you know, my, at my age. Like, a lot of people were pounding that sweet, white, rock gut, white Zin. You know what I mean? And so, like, it took a long time for even real good Zinfandel to kind of overcome that hump of, like, the white Zin, the, like, the kind of, uh, you know, bad connotations of the white Zin. But then why hasn't there been more of, like, a white Zin comeback, like, good white Zin? Like, what, can it not be made? I'm sure someone makes a delicious one. I just haven't had it. I had it, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever. It's not the, it's neither here nor there. Hey, you want to take another caller? Sure. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello? Hey. Hey. Um, I'm, I'm a, a baker, and I make a carrot pumpkin bread every year. Um, had a question about that? Sure. How do you cure the pumpkin? Uh- all right, so it's just a uh, roasted, you know, roasted squash, whatever, whatever you can find, kabocha, blue hubbard, um, and then most of the hydration for the bread, it's a rye bread. Most of the hydration comes from carrot juice. Um, so, I basically, I, the, the bread's delicious. I just wanted to reduce some of the labor of it, especially since I don't have an outlet for the runoff from the juicing process. And uh, you mean like the, the, the you mean the carrot pulp? Looks like. Carrots are mostly uh, are, are pretty high pectin, so I was wondering if anyone had experience just kind of breaking down carrots into a mush with pectin enzyme, pectinase enzymes. Uh, maybe for you, you've done something like that for a cocktail, or uh, wanted to know how that would work out. I have, but it's been many, many years. I mean, carrots one of those things that, like you know. Auto auto clarifies to a very high extent, as opposed to like a lot of other juices on separation. Like, so <clears throat> it's one of those things that I haven't focused a lot on in like trying to clarify it. And it's been I used to do uh, like back in the day. We run for that one, Nick. We did apples and carrots. We did a bunch of cocktails like that: um, gin, apple, carrot. But it's been a long, long time. Uh, look, the original uh, purpose of a lot of these um, pectinase things, there was one that I used to use on apples called Pectinex Smash XXL, which was what we started using before we were using SPL back in the day. And its stated goal is to increase the yield of juice out of um, increase the yield of juice out of uh, apples. And I'm sure it would also work on um, carrots. Now, I would use SPL. Because my guess is that there's probably beyond pectin that there's a good bit of like uh, hemicellulose and stuff in a carrot. So I would um, – carrots are – like one of the reasons carrots are hard is because aren't they high in calcium? 
Anyway, uh, like, uh, doesn't that reinforce the pectin structure? It's, I haven't researched carrot in a million years. But I remember, remember how the modern cuisine guys used to say that uh, the internal, like the very taproot inside structure of the carrot is higher in calcium, that like lighter core, and that they did a differential tasting where they popped the core out and did a, like a triangle test of like the outside of the carrot versus the inside. And I think they were saying that they thought it was a higher calcium level that was increasing to a bitterness perception in the inside of the taproot. But I don't know if that's actually what was going on or if it's just the majority of the sugar storage is in the outside. I don't know how far they went into it. Um, anyway, been many years. But so my guess is that, yes, uh, pre-treatment with Pectinex uh, Ultra SPL will increase uh, your yield. Uh, there's got to be some good use for that dry, nasty pulp. There's got to be. Like some, so, some sort of some sort of crappy health cookie. Some what? Some sort of crappy health cookie. Like, is there's got to be some use? That's like, you know how like when you make tofu, you have all the okara left over, like the the things, and you're like, what am I going to do with this? And so you just add a little bit to like every muffin and pancake you make for the next like you know month to try to get rid of it until it starts going stale and stanky in your in your in your fridge. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is carrot pulp the same way? Can you just kind of toss dry, worthless carrot pulp into as roughage for people who want like a cookie that helps them like uh, go, 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 you know, to the bathroom or no? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we found that the, the runoff from the juicing just isn't really flavorful to use for too much. Um, yeah. No, it's just but, a fiber. It's just fiber. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what I, so I, I guess what I was wondering is, is uh, if, so, say I'm using about, I think, uh, if I remember right, it's about, like, 50% carrot juice, 50% water in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the formula. If I were to, to just take carrots and submerge them one-to-one by weight in water plus pectin X and kind of let it sit, and then w- would that uh, no. r- break down at all? or No. No, 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 no. What you would have to do is you'd have to juice it, take the mm-hmm. pulp, treat the pulp with Pectinex, and then try to do another juice extraction on that. Okay. Pectinex will not penetrate at all. In fact, when we used to use the Pectinex Ultra SPL to do things like, uh, you know, one of the old tricks is uh, to get all of the white off of, uh, like, doing Supremes of, uh, like, pomelos and something, things that are very hard to do Supremes of. And, uh, you know, we would peel it first because it wouldn't penetrate through the peel. Then we would uh, break the, it into, like, like, halves and quarters, then soak it, then break it apart after it had started dissolving, and then soak it again to get all the stuff off. This stuff just will not penetrate. Uh, it won't. Like, even under vacuum conditions, in a carrot specifically, carrot infu- vacuum infusions into carrots tend not to go that deep. Uh, unless you're doing super multiple pulses, and so I highly doubt that you're going to get that much of an increase in yield. Unless you could, if you if you if you put all of the carrots, if you didn't want to juice it twice, if you put all the carrots through like uh, like um, a Roboku with a disc in it, and like chip them into carrot chips, and then soak them in Pectinex, and then pull them out and throw them through them through your champion or whatever you're using. Uh, that might increase your yield, but I would run some tests to make sure that it's worth the time uh, and effort. Otherwise, I would just try to do a rejuice of the stuff and see whether the stuff that comes out uh, later is any good. Hey, here's a question. It's just off the top of my head. You ever, any of you guys ever make rice bran pickles? 
You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking rice about. Rice bran pickles. I wonder, because when you make rice bran pickles, you know, you have to, like, incubate the rice bran and all this, and it has to have a, it has a certain moisture content. You're burying your vegetables in it. You have to replenish it, blah, 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 right? I wonder whether you could cut a rice bran mixture with, like, really dry pressed carrot stuff. Like, I wonder whether you could, like, add it, whether it would be bad or would it add, like, a good thing to, like, an already going rice bran pickle. What do you think? I don't know, but it's just fiber, though. That's right. Well, what's rice bran? Fiber plus some fat and some other stuff. What's carrot? What's carrot waste? A little bit of sugar, not no fat. Fiber. But I'm not saying like go 100. percent I'm saying like go partial. Do you think it would rot, or do you think it's a low enough moisture content that it'd be okay? okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, with all with all the sugar, it might get yeasty though. That's, that'd be the one concern. Right, but that's when when you taste like when you do a good job, like if you like double double juice or whatever, the pulp that comes out of a champion with the carrot stuff is pretty. It's fairly neutralized compared to a real carrot. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder how much actual sugar is left in there. I get what you're saying. Like, you wouldn't want a lot of ye- you wouldn't want yeast stuff going. But it would be interesting. Anyway, I don't know. Someone's I'm sure has tried it. I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll try that out and I'll let you guys know. Yeah, cool. Let us know what happens. Let us know whether you increase your yield. All right. Thanks very much. Cool. Thank you. Um, all right. So, uh, Matt, are you and all you guys olive fans? You like olives? You have any, you have thoughts on olives? No, no thoughts on olives. You guys are you guys, are, you guys are worse than Nastasia. Matt Hall wrote in. That's uh, just hurtful. Yeah, I'm interested in getting your opinion on the selection of olives for cocktails. I have been using. Um, uh, I can't pronounce words that I read. Castle Vetrano olives for dirty martinis. Two parts uh, dry gin, one part uh, dry vermouth, uh, and a bar spoon of brine. It seems good, but am I missing a better option? What about other cocktails? Thanks, Matt Hall. So we use uh, we use um, <laughs> frankly we use olives that fit into the bottles because what we do is we throw we push olives into our martini bottles. What are they? What do we use? Like pichelines or something like that? I don't know. The little ones, little green guys. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so that's what we use. But, I, you know, I would just do it based on uh, taste. Tony Canigliaro in, um, in 69 Colbrook Row and Zetter Townhouse, et cetera, et cetera, in um, London, he uses exclusively Nocholara olives. And he um, – of course, he's Sicilian. But then, he, you know, what he does is that the, the least – the least – or I should say the, the yeah, lowest yield idea on earth – he takes Nocholara olives, drains the brine from them, puts them in a centrifuge, spins them, and lets the, the increased weight of the centrifuge on whole olives expel some brine, and then that's what he uses for his dirty martinis. And then the rest he sends back to the kitchen to make tapenade. I was like, Tony, <laughs> how much tapenade do you sell? Like, who are you, who are you unloading all this tapenade on that you can, like... Yeah, I'm talking like, you know, he'll get, you know, those, the big, the big 10 cans of Nocholara's and he'll get out of that, like, I don't know, like, like a cup, like a, less than a pint of like, of, of, uh, of brine. And that's, think of how much tapenade a number 10 can has in it worth of olives. You know what I'm saying? Anyways. So, uh, I would just choose olives that you like. I would think most, I mean... What do most people do? I've done Kalamata, but it's very specific, and it's colored, so it's kind of like people generally want green olives, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would just say e- experiment. If you have access to a centrifuge, you can make really, really, really good olive brine just by blending it and spinning it, and you get really, really good paste, really, really good brine, and a little bit of uh, oil that olive connoisseurs hate. 
because it's fusty. It has that it has that oxidized kind of cured taste to it, which all of uh, people hate. Um, okay, uh, Richard wrote in about seasoning sticks. There's a Kickstarter. It's called Seasoning Sticks. And he said, while watching the video, I got a few laughs and a, and a couple of fa- face palms over their science behind the product. Probably the worst thing, it, uh, worst thing being that they feel that all the water is gone from the inside of the meat at 110 degrees. There's some, notice there's some science problems. Uh, there's some science problems. What, what, what this is, Nick, Esther, you tell me, is that these people make sticks that are, uh, out of some sort of seasoning. And then they shove these sticks into like a meat product. And then they cook it to try and season it from the inside out. Now, I'm sure that Richard is expecting uh, that I'm going to go completely, like, ape on this. And I would if I had more time. You know what I mean? But I'm going to say something here. And this goes back to, like, Greg, Greg Blonder. I'm supposed to be talking about Greg Blonder and vac- vacuum pressure marination, but I haven't had time to run a lot of the experiments yet. Whatever. We'll get to it next week. Or In fact, I would love to meet him uh, at the Harvard uh, next week. He believes that vacuum marination and pressure marination don't work. But I think that he is not necessarily uh, correct based on the experiments he's run. Like, for instance, have you guys noticed? Do you guys you guys vacuum bag for with with flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, and again, remember, and I'll get back to the seasoning sticks. But like, remember, uh, in general, like it's clear that under vacuum, salt penetration is higher, right? And nitrate penetrate penetration is higher. I know this because you can run the test. You can infuse a, a pork belly with uh, with pink salt and then not do it. I mean, uh, not vacuum it and vacuum it. He's doing it under a lower, um, under a less high vacuum than we would be doing it. But And then when you cook it the next day, the pink is deeper in the pork belly that you did under vacuum. He's also not getting a lot of the effects. He's doing whole muscle meat, so he's not getting effective like penetration along bone lines and crevices in, in, in muscles. Uh, also, he's not doing it to the point where – you know how when you do a bad vacuum job and like you can see the meat inflate like a marshmallow, like it puffs up? Clearly, you're f- separating the fibers and by doing that, you're allowing the meat to penetrate. But the, I think it's bad practice, although it might not actually be bad practice on meat that you are trying to quote unquote tenderize. So we, since we sit there and we beat chickens and beef with mallets to tenderize them and yet I'm worried about inflating them with a vacuum, right? So who's the idiot? It's me. But, you know, obviously fish is destroyed by that technique. So, like, you know, you don't want to do that with fish. But going back to my point, what do you guys think, you two here in the studio with me, think, and Dave, if you, if you do this as well, uh, is, the, is the thing that you cook most often that absorbs marinade the fastest in a vacuum? I'll give you five seconds to think. Five, four, three, two, one. Shrimp! Shrimp! And crustaceans, because they have open circulatory systems. So I think, you know, you're dealing with something like uh, uh, a... I mean, everybody knows that when you vacuum bag shrimp, you don't do it to cook it, because that's gross, right? You do it because shrimp absorbs flavor like a mofo in a bag, as opposed to something like a chicken, right? Have you noticed that? Like, shrimp picks up stuff in a bag, and I think it's because it's just a big straw. It's a big open circulatory system. And she goes right through. Yeah, I mean, that's my theory. I want to run some tests though with larger molecules. So he uses green food coloring as a stand-in for larger molecules because most of the flavor molecules that we have are very large compared to something like salt. And so, like the mistake people make in marinades is they think that uh, these larger molecules are actually going to make their way into the meat, and they're simply not under most uh, – unless you beat them with mallets, whether it being marinated, in which case – but anyway, we'll get into that later. As for the sticks, 
Uh, so marinades tend not to work, but anyone that's – have you ever roasted a chicken? I know you have at freaking Cafe Balut. I know you've roasted a chicken in your life, right? Nick, you roasted a chicken? If you stuff crap into a chicken's cavity, is there anyone on earth who doesn't think that the flavors from the herbs and the citrus and the onions and the alliums that you shove into the cavity of a chicken when you roast it don't permeate the freaking meat? Because they're stupid. They have no smell or taste. You know what I mean? It's like it's obvious that those flavors during cooking permeate, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so like that's effect. That's a, a temperature effect it happens while while it's cooking. And so, if that happens by shoving a chicken, by shoving like you know uh, chopped up uh, lemon, uh, coriander, parsley, uh, onions, and rosemary into a chicken cavity, pepper, salt, duh. You know what I mean? Like, I mean maybe these sticks, as horrifying as they are to have. What horrifies me about the idea of a stick of spice through a, a something is that. You have this like hyper concentrated, like spice hit right where the stick was. Yeah, so like point of contact. Right. So you know we always used to call that spice burn. Right. So like you'd have like someone, some idiot was like spicing a bag, let's say for low temperature cooking, and they just throw the freaking spice into the bag and then they walk away and then you get that super concentration. A lot of spices go hard bitter when they're cooked for a long time in high concentrations in one thing, and so you get spice burns or some idiot would throw. Uh, like rosemary right against uh, like like a fragile thing in a bag, hard vac it down without any liquids, and then you get that like imprint, that like bitter over rosemary imprint of green all over the meat right where it hit. First of all, those jerks would make an actual literal cooked imprint of a rosemary stick into the food, which is enough that you should like you should go to a corner of the room and cry. But uh, beyond that, uh, it creates spice burn. So that would be my only thing right what do you think is is a rosemary stick the original seasoning stick rosemary stick is the original seasoning stick because you know you shove that thing into you know shove that that's what Ch- Chesare was born on a rosemary skewer i think <laughs> i look i i'm not sure you're turning it into something gross but i don't i'm not sure exactly you, how that you works. did that i didn't do that all right, so listen, we're running out of time here. Next week, we'll get, or uh, two weeks from now, we'll get uh, to Mark Bledsoe's question uh, from, uh, we, have a, we have a month. He has, an ev- he has an event a month away, but I'll get into it uh, next week, hopefully with time for you to work on it. Uh, Devin Krebs had a question about how did you get into this whole line of business, which is a kind of a longer discussion. Uh, we'll get to it. We'll eat some cookies, uh, and uh, that's it. Oh, I will say this, one thing on the way out. You know, in New York City and Washington and Philadelphia, like all the buildings are – this is not a cooking thing. They're like brownstone. You're familiar with brownstones? Yeah. So all that brownstone came from a quarry in Connecticut called Brownstone, and uh, they it flooded in 1936. It's now a water park, dude. It's sick. It's sick, man. You got to go. Got to go to Brownstone Water Park. And last thing, this is cooking-related. Uh, so everybody who listens to me knows that I'm very pro-Tandor, Right. You know this? Is you anybody know. anti-Tandor? Well, no, but I'm very pro. Trump. Trump. Trump hates Tandors, yes. But I'm very, very pro-Tandor. Uh, but what it's done, and this is, it's totally changed my entire outlook on cook, cooking in general. Because, oh. yeah, because what if you cook in a Tandor, other than bread, which is one and done, right, on the side, pops off, everything in a Tandor is, uh, most everything is, is multi-cook. 
right? In, out, in, out, in, out. And I've said before, like David Kinch, uh, David Kinch, you know, from Manresa, when he decided that he wasn't going to do low temperature anymore because it wasn't enough, it wasn't enough work for him to do just low temperature work. So he would take his like old school, I think he, I forget whether he's Bonet or Molteni, one of those things, right? He would, he would just take his meats in and out of the old traditional oven to try to get that high average, a high instantaneous heat, low average heat, which is why rotisserie is so good. And Tandoor is the same way, super high instantaneous, in, out, in, out, in, out, oil-based in between so that it, it starts cooking as soon as it gets into the fire, right? And so you get these, like, that's how you get the really nice crust and the really, but, and so, but I've just been cooking everything that way. So, like, on my grills now, and, like, you know, Meathead, when he was here, would hate this, but, like, everything I do is, like, is done Tandoor style now because I don't have to think ahead. You know what I mean? It's just, like, make it thin enough so that it's going to work and then just off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on. So I do, I, I, I've been doing the vertical grilling, but now I've been doing it now horizontal grilling. I told you I bought one of those big cowboy grills at the Home Depot for $150 that has, you know, basically the grilling area of a, of a dining room table. And, like, I have so much wood that, like, I don't have to, like, I don't have to worry about, like, uh, sustainability. It's like I live in the 1800s and, like, I'm just destroying the earth, you know, one person at a time. You know, it's like – but, again, like, the wood would otherwise go to waste. It would rot into the ground. No one's coming to buy it or use it or build houses out of it. So I'd build a – I do one. Uh, I do one chimney of charcoal, and then I layer like logs over it. Literally, if you go back and you read camp cookbooks from uh, like the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, there was a huge woodcraft movement that went along. Not woodcraft meaning like woodwork. Woodcraft meaning like how to survive in the woods. Uh, movement that happened in the U.S. as part of the kind of return to nature naturalism movement. Right, it happened right around the time when all of our forests were already kind of destroyed. So people were trying to like hook it up, but the culture at the time was still. You know, you get a big hunting party, you go out into the woods, you chop down a bunch of full size freaking trees and you build a camp, you know, including like, you know, like uh, like big uh, fireplaces and they were burning huge amounts of wood. And so like I can kind of act that way now at least for a little while. So I'm building these giant wood fires and man, having a giant like dining room sized, like super hot flame that you can just off on, off on. I can crank and I really love cooking that way. I just love it. And I did shrimp on it the other day and chicken because, like, shrimp, shrimp's the master of the off, on, off, on. Shrimp is like, boom, 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 done. You know what I mean? Off, on, off, on, off, on. Do you hate people that cook their shrimp at too low a heat and then the whole thing is ruined and the outside still doesn't have any nice crust on it? Yeah. I hate that. I hate. One last question because I know we need to leave. Are you guys bigger fans of getting a shrimp and cooking it nicely so that you can eat the shell and get all the flavor? Or do you like people to cook it with the shell on and then the idiots peel off the shell and lose all the flavor? Or do you like to shell the sucker and then put the flavor on it but then also not shield the meat as much from the high heat? I like the worst option on that. Which is you cook it with the shell on and the idiots peel it. Yeah. I would rather just eat the shell. I like eating the shell. I'm very pro eating the shell. I'm, I'm more it's just... I'm just lazy. Well, do you? Does that mean you also like the double stir fry technique? The second one is the one that makes the shell crispy enough to eat, like like salt and pepper shrimp, where yeah. you hit it once, then you pull it, and then you hit it again, and then yeah. And that actually, to be honest, and this they're going to have to kick me off here, but the the that's the one advantage to kind of the low quality, really thin shelled, like farm raised, like BS shrimp that we get is that if you cook it like that, those shells are super super easy just to eat. You know what I mean? And I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Americans need to get over it. Eat the shell. Anyway. Just eat the shell. It's good calcium. Yeah. uh, Is that true? Is there calcium in it? It's chitin. I I know it's chitinous. 
It's, so it's good for like whatever chitin's good for. Maybe there's calcium in it. Uh, I'm sure there is because I know lobster shells make that terrible flavor. If you cook, you know, you ever you ever make a lobster uh, broth? You ever accidentally cook the shell too long? Nasty, nasty. Lobster shell only want to be in the broth for a certain amount of time, and if you overcook it, it gets that shell taste. And I think that shell taste is calcium, but I don't know because I never researched it. All I know is is that if I see someone boiling their lobster shell and then I come back in, in like an hour and they're still boiling that lobster shell, I'm like, oh my God, why? You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, cooking issues. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.